Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. A 31-year-old Rikers Island inmate named Mary Yehuda died after overdosing on drugs at the Rose M. Singer Center, the women's jail commonly known as Rosie's. She is the fifth Rikers Island detainee to die this year. She was a kind, loving, intelligent person invested in her recovery. She was focused on her future of giving back to the community. It's devastating that someone who is so young and had experienced so much trauma has died in custody. She was hopeful for her future, said Tahani Dunn of the Bronx Defenders, which represented Yehuda. Yehuda spent much of her youth growing up in foster care and was homeless by 13. She struggled with substance abuse and homelessness, Dunn said, adding that Yehuda had worked hard at recovery with little support. Yehuda's brother was killed in the Bronx in March 2020. It really is a travesty and we need to figure out how to do better as a society and as a community to stop these deaths in custody, Dunn said. Advocates said Yehuda's death is the first involving a detainee at the jail commonly known as Rosie's since Leilene Polanco died in June 2019 after an epileptic seizure in solitary confinement. 17 corrections officers faced discipline for breakdowns in preventing Polanco's death. Yehuda's death comes one day after the city submitted a plan to a Manhattan federal judge detailing how the corrections department will regain control of Rikers Island. Federal prosecutors have said they're mulling over a court request for outside leadership to take over the chronically dysfunctional jails. The deaths of three other Rikers inmates this year that preceded Yehuda's each involved staffing breakdowns where correction staff either was not doing required rounds or simply was absent from the units when the detainees went into medical distress. The fourth Rikers inmate to die this year, 25-year-old Deshaun Carter, arrived at the jail without a mental health designation, noting he'd been on suicide watch just last year, according to records. Carter hanged himself in his cell in general population on May 7th. 16 inmates died in city custody last year. This week, we return to our conversation between Baye Sylvester and Focus Initiative's Jacques Huerta. Both formerly incarcerated in Indiana, they described the circumstances that brought them to prison in a previous episode. In this segment, they talk about the way that the prison system responds to politically engaged prisoners. When prisoners become conscious and organized, the prison ramps up the level of repression. As you'll hear Baye and Jacques discuss, prisoners who educate themselves are viewed as a threat to the system that confines them. The political education process had begun. Right. You know, and that opened up a whole new thing, and that got me to really seeing where I was at, mm-hmm. the nature of where I was at, what it was an extension of, and so the, the lockups, the lockdowns, the tie downs, being subjected to the you know psychotropic drugs, all that began to take place cycle as an, in, in an attempt to quell that 
being politicized, uh, right. you know, shaking loose that colonial mentality, that criminal mentality. Right. I couldn't wear it no more. Right. But that put me in opposition to what they expected me to be in the prison. And right. that was just be, be lumping, you right. know, prey on one another. Right. You know, you, you said that, um, you know, you, you found it revealing that once you got there and started talking to those brothers locked up in the same situation with you, that uh, they come from very similar backgrounds, you know, kind of the mm -hmm. same that you shared. Sure. Same way with me, you mm -hmm. know, because I come from that directly same, basically the same type of background from impoverished conditions in Louisiana mm -hmm. to Gary, Indiana. And then uh, my parents falling out, mm -hmm. you know, and, and even before they fell out, they had fell out in the home, you mm -hmm. know, and then busy working. And as a kid, you don't want to be in the way. You don't want to be a burden. You're trying to uh, relieve a little bit of pressure, relieve a little bit of stress. You think you're doing something good, you know, but really you're putting yourself directly in harm's way. Mm -hmm. And you're complicating the situation, but without that life experience that you mentioned earlier, you know, what better conclusion could you come to, you know? And on the other side of that, on this side, like the people that I've spoken with on this uh, Prisoner Speak series have all said the same thing, basically, that you're saying about once you get into the system and if you choose the high road to educate yourself, to be politicized, to understand how these societal dynamics actually take place mm -hmm. and how it can have a powerfully negative effect in people's lives, you know. So you don't want to do criminal acts. You don't want to, you know, because you see how you've been duped and, and kind of pushed into the corner to react. So you try to reinvent yourself mm -hmm. with these new informations that you've learned to expand in your horizons. And then now they consider you even more of an enemy. <laughs> you know, yeah, because you figured out the tricks. You know, now they can see you even more hostile than you would just being some violent offender, violent criminal. You know, now you're at the top of the list, sure. which is amazing. That, that in and of itself, you hear so much in the news about someone being arrested and then they want to put their criminal history in there and they say, well, this person is a four or five time loser or you find out that someone has been to prison three or four times, they only have a GED or they have other unresolved issues that wasn't addressed while they was down. And so the, the taxpayers need to revolt and say, look, we're not getting a return on our dollar, right. first of all, because they're being hoodwinked, bamboozled, and so, and so on and so forth, because the prison system, you know, is, is not designed to elevate anyone. It's designed to break your will, you know, and to just confine your misdeeds. Yeah. You know, the misdeeds can go on in there as long as they aren't about raising the level of consciousness, as long as they're not, you're not addressing the fact that, wait a minute, I'm going to file a grievance about this, that, and the other. And I know several other people have filed these grievances. That means that what's going on is systemic. It's systemic. Mm -hmm. They don't want that. They don't want you addressing that. And so that's where when you start politicizing yourself, you start educating yourself, now you become a problem. Mm -hmm. Now you become a problem. You have people within the Department of Correction who have murdered, who have raped. I'm talking about why they're there. Right. And they are not given the designation of, well, you're being put on administrative segregation. 
You're right. going to be put on this wheel where you're going to be in this prison for so long, that prison. And now it's to the point where they have that interstate compact. They even send you out of state. Wow. And say that you are a threat to the security institution, but you have these others in there who are still operating out of their baseness. They're not being treated like that. So that's 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 political persecution. Exactly. That's political persecution. Exactly. And 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 what it's the same thing out here. You know, in the streets, if someone is challenging the um, the, the city government or saying that look, these policies and these codes are, are corrupt and that they're um, not speaking to the needs of the people, then you become a problem. Okay, it's the same way as that because they don't want you to educate other individuals because if there is uh, um, oppression, then it needs to be resistance. The same out here, you can't uh, say. You know that, okay, I'm not an oppressor. I don't oppress anyone, but you're not speaking out against those who are. Or you are walking, hey, you having lunch every day, and you partying with these people. Because for me, that's giving tacit approval. And if you're not part of the solution or working toward the solution, then you're part of the problem. Definitely. You know, and I, I might say, well, okay, I'm going to file a 1983 civil rights lawsuit, whether I'm inside or outside, but other folks who have been so broken, so, so, so beaten down, they also have a right to say, you know what, I'm going to meet it where it comes to me at. Mm -hmm. And that's what you find. People like to think that, well, there is no political prisoners, but if, the, if, the, if, if it's not enough money, if you know that in, what's your zip code? In 46201, we got 700 prisoners coming back to that zip code every year. But the city and the state will not appropriate money in that particular area to address the needs of that community. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's, a That's problem. political. That's a problem. You see what I'm saying? Because and you so, know the problems are there. Exactly. Yeah. And so consciousness in prison is, is something that... And we would tell individuals, we had an African studies class in there. It was directed toward, and a lot of Latino brothers came in there too. It was about this here. We want you to understand the dynamics of what's going on in your neighborhood. We want you to understand that the, the behavior that you depicted in your neighborhood against people that look like you is because that was the confines of your, of your environment. But if you don't do nothing else, we don't want you to go out here and prey on those individuals who have nothing to do with your depravity. The mm -hmm. fact that you are oppressed and so on and so forth. But mm -hmm. see, the system will criminalize struggle. Right. They were criminalized struggle. Just like in, in the late 60s under J. Edgar Hoover, they came up with COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program. Mm -hmm. And that there, they said that the Black Panther Party was the number one threat to the internal security of the United States government. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with that came all types of agent provocateurs being you know, snuck in, right. you know, and so to on and so forth. To infiltrate, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they, they changed the language. But with the struggle that's been going on for the last few years, led by the youth, the conscious youth, just like it was then, you know, they said, well, these folks are, they, they use different language, but it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. But now you have Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yes, and, and they have taken over the same uh, um, intention as the COINTELPRO program. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's really more diabolical now because they have much more technology, mm -hmm. you know. More and insidious so, in their tactics. Right, yeah. and so, but, but what has happened, even in, in our own in oppressed communities, oppression has been normalized, mm -hmm. you know. You have so many people who are of the opinion that I gotta get mine, you gotta get yours. 
by any means necessary. And they don't understand until it's too late, until it's too late that we have to have tactics. We need to hold political education classes and have them on every street corner like they got liquor stores right now. Yes, sir. That's what we need. We need to be educating folks, and I'm talking about across the board. You have, I'm sitting in this Maui Law School right now, and there's people in this room and on these Zooms who are going to be in positions of power. Because when you are uh, licensed by the bar and you have the ability to go in and represent or to prosecute, whether it's in civil court or criminal court, that's a position of power. And so you have to decide, you know, okay, where am I at with what I'm doing? You know, in pursuit of paying off my student loans and trying to meet the expectations of family, friends, and so on and so forth, do I just pass the thing along or do I stand on conscience? Do I stand on what's, you know, on what's right? Good decision right there. Yeah, it's a hard decision. Hard decision. It's a hard decision because many of us like to think, well, that's not affecting me. That's not my problem until it becomes your problem. You know, it's just a short drive from Hallville to Geis, am I right? <laughs> or the Carmel. And, and it has exploded on many instances because people do not want to hold their elected officials. And I don't care what persuasion, what they look like, you know, they can be as dark as you, but if you are not speaking and doing the deed of the people, then I got a problem with you. Right. You know, and so we have to become, be clear on that. And right. so we have a tendency, the public has a tendency to think that those individuals in prison who have politicized themselves or who have been incarcerated as a result of their activity out here in challenging the system, well, the system, they were found guilty. But if you checked out the 13th, what did it say? It says that you should be duly convicted. It says nothing about justly convicted. It says nothing duly. about it should be a just conviction and a legal conviction. It's legal. But when you think about it, we live in a system, I said, this is a colonial government. And because it's the head of an imperialism and colonialism around the world, then even the subjects, those that oppress, we can live at a comfort level that other oppressed people around the world would never know nothing about. That's why they streaming, dying in boats and everything else trying to get over here. You see what I'm saying? Right. But those tentacles, wherever they find themselves in Honduras, in Africa, in Eastern Europe, or wherever they may be, the winds that they get are symbolic because the head is right here, and so go us. You know, so, go, so goes the world, so goes the U.S., so goes the world. You know, we have in, in Mississippi, in Arkansas, and even in rural Indiana, Wow. We got people who don't have running water, yes. you know, and folks know about it. Yeah. You know, yeah. that should not be okay. Not at all. You know, but, you know, we have this tendency in this country that we know nothing about class politics. Mm-hmm. We rather deal with race as, as opposed to class. Michael Jordan, Jay-Z, they have nothing in common with me. Right. Nothing <laughs> in common with me. Just like someone down in Fountain Square who think that Donald Trump got they back, understand that you would never get to play in Mar-a-Lago. You would never get invited. <laughs> and if I see you on the side of the road, and if you, you get might. in front of my car, you, you know, they're going to run them over. <laughs> but in this country, we don't understand that. And right. so I'm glad that these series of, of events is going on at this law school and around the state because 
You know, we need to challenge ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, where am I? Mm-hmm. What am and what can I do? Now we all have to define our role. Right. And I'm not compelling anyone to do anything outside of what they're comfortable with. But you have to know where you stand. Definitely. You did 26 years consecutively. Yeah. That's tearing down a lot of calendars, man. Yeah. Tell us about some of those experiences you had during that 26-year period, especially the experiences that made you see the system exactly for the monster that it, that it is. Okay, so I was 18 when I got to prison. Only thing I knew about prison is that it's survival of the fittest. Mm-hmm. I had been the juvenile, but I said, well, you know, this is the end of the road. This is the big house now, mm-hmm. you know. So when you're in jail, you accumulate a few little things, some toiletries. You might get to make it through, you know, RDC and stuff with that stuff. And when you get to prison, you might have some zuzus and wham-whams, you know. Mm-hmm. So the first thing was on my mind is that, hey, when I saw somebody that I knew was this here, you know anybody that I can trade this stuff for? Mm-hmm. For some, a, some a defense weapon. Because mm-hmm. I'm 18 years old, I don't all, all these folks around, I'm thinking about survival. Right. You know, I don't need no, no zuzus and wham whams. <laughs> I can wash up with some, right. any kind of soap. Right. But I don't know, I don't know this environment like right. I knew my other environment. So, right. you know, I'm putting it in place. Anyway, right. so I was idle. I was put on an idle situation because they wanted me to work in the kitchen. I said, I ain't come here to work, you know. And so it's okay, you refuse to work, so they put me on idle. I didn't have a job for like the first two years I was in prison. I, didn't, I refused an assignment. And it was during that time that different books was being passed around. And when I would go out to the yard and I would see those individuals conjured around, they weren't playing basketball, lifting weights, they was discussing things. And so that's what intrigued me, right. you know? And so I began to get an understanding. And it was at that time that I was getting you know, just me now write up for missing roll in and stuff like that. But it was in the confines of that cell that I took, you know, I went through those jungles in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You know, I found out what it was like, I got a sense of what it was like to be on Goree Island. I found out what it was like, what was going on, according to writing, in the catacombs over in Eastern Europe mm-hmm. and what the people had been subjected to and when they were sent over here as indentured servants and stuff. Right. And so I got that, and that rested with me inside of me. And so it was then that my walk changed, my conversation changed, and I couldn't stand by and say, yeah, you was a, some kind of fool when the police, you know, the guards was roughhousing you, were, you know, mm-hmm. all you was doing was trying to get a piece of bread and here it was, they, you know, doing whatever they can to you. I got to stand up and say something about that. And if I got to get involved in with that, I'm gonna get involved with that. Right. Especially if we, you know, we break bread together. Right. And so it was those things. And so start going to lock up and then we were being classified. They start classifying us and they said, okay, they classified us in a way that when you go in front of, you get a write-up for something, you know, you had a curtain hanging up because you was using the bathroom or whatever, you wanted some privacy, you know, and then that write-up was not the same write-up that my neighbor would get. Now I got to go to the hole, you know, because every time they get an opportunity to send a message to me, you can't do what you want, this and that there and stuff. And so when they came with the Supermax unit at Westville, they started saying, okay, well, we're going to just send such and such a people down there. Mm-hmm. And I missed out the first couple of times, but then my turn came. Right. 
you know, but they were supposed to have psychiatrists see certain individuals because many people in prison that had, you know, psychotic breaks. Mm-hmm. Like I told you, there's many of them who have been to war or they had been traumatized on the street to the extent that when they were confined, you know, they, they hadn't, and they weren't, their issues weren't being addressed. And they were being sent to, to, to supermax prison or kept on lockup units, strapped down, and so on and so forth, which was adding to their psychosis. Okay, and so you know that began, and we had a series of of, of um, planned demonstrations inside the institution, around police brutality inside the joint, around conditions, and it was at those times when they would declare everybody on the yard or off the yard. They would come out in full gear with the riot guns and stuff, and that's when you found out, you know, that this is not my friend. Right. You know, and that, you know, the, the, the institution was an extension of the larger apparatus of the U.S. government in real time. Right. In real time. Right. And so going and, and then just, you know, meeting with other individuals and, and studying. So I was in, 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 in the system when brothers first started wearing dreadlocks. Mm-hmm. And they said, you can't wear those dreadlocks because that's black supremacy. You know, you, that, you can't do that. And they would get to, got to the point, the guys, they were trying to force guys, they was getting them down, they were snatching them out their head. Shaka Shakur was one, you yeah. know? And, um, and so we were on the lockup unit, so we, we put together a suit, and it made it all the way to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, you know, and they gave, granted us some relief. But it was that type of thing because you had, sub, just like you have in the institution, cliques and, and subsets from street organizations. Mm-hmm. And so that, the same thing goes on with the, um, the guards in there. Many of these guards, below, especially down in, in Pendleton in southern Indiana around here, they belong to white supremacy groups. Mm-hmm. Or they belong to some ultra-right, conservative, right-wing groups and stuff. And, and when you come into it, we from the inner cities, when, when they opened up Wabash, it mm-hmm. was so bad. Right. You know, and so in 1985, as a result of Lincoln Love, Brother Lokmar, being brutalized on the lockup unit by some of these same individuals that right. I just gave notice of, right. it was some conscious brothers in the joint saying enough is enough. Right. You know, because that is the event that you're talking about, the uh, riot of 85, is one of the core themes of this Prisoner Speaks Out series that we've been conducting. And I've talked to several different individuals who were directly affected by that situation that you speak of. And it just amazes me how much common knowledge it is about what you're saying to be the truth, about Mm -hmm. officers having direct relationships and ties and affiliations with white supremacist groups and, um, you know, just, just some pretty bad guys. And it's completely documented. It's completely on record. Uh, uh, some of it has been expressed directly by the guards themselves, mm-hmm. not even uh, offenders accusing people, convicts mm-hmm. accusing people. Some officers have came out mm-hmm. and said, yes, this is it. This is what it is. And still for nothing to be done, you know, and for no relief, like zero for a lot of these brothers. And a lot of them are still behind the walls to this day since 1985. You had some individuals that was involved in that who were so moved, so moved by the the oppression and, and the, you know, and what what went on and the brutality 
that some of these individuals had less than a year to go right. home. Yeah. And they stood back to back and they challenged the administration. Because first it was just a standoff and like, hey, we want, we want these grievances heard and we want to see that he's okay. Right. They wouldn't present him and that sparked the thing where they done killed him. Right. You know, and that just heightened things. Right. And so you have certain individuals, that was 1985, man. Right. So that's what, uh, going on 30 years ago. And you talk about like John Cole, uh, brother Balagoon and Naeem Trotter. Right. You know, I got to the state prison in 1978, and me, uh, uh, John Cole was already there. Okay. He's been in prison since 1976, okay. and so and it's no different than when then Sudiata Leonard Peltier, you know, Rochelle McGee. Some of these names, you know, you all may not know of, but these are individuals who have languished in prison for. I'm talking about 40 and 50 years, 40 and 50 years, Albany, New Washington. And in this state, I can go with the Shaka Shakur, the Lokmar, the brother that spoke here uh, a, a month ago, Zolo, that was a political prisoner in the, in the live, right in front of you, you know? And in the state of Indiana, and across the, across the country, but the state of Indiana especially has a very brutal and very networked way of dealing with prisoners who stand up. And this ain't just black prisoners. This ain't just Latino prisoners. This right. can even be for white prisoners who stand up and say, I'm tired of being oppressed. They may not even connect themselves with the larger struggle, but right. that's what happens. Right. That's what happens. And so, and the reason why they feel that they can do that there is because the general public, you know, they turn the eye on that. Now I understand that most people are preoccupied with trying to take care of their own situation, but at what time? Mm -hmm. You know, at what time? When they consistently, you know, people don't realize this. It gets highlighted a lot. 18 people are killed a day by police in the United States. When you count over, over 365 days, that's a lot of people being killed mm -hmm. for various reasons. I'm not saying all of them black. I know they not. But those individuals who have family members who are, who suffer from schizophrenia, mm -hmm. who suffer from bipolar, you know, I've seen these people in jail be mistreated to the extent it's just inhumane. All the time. All the time. You know, and they can't even articulate what they went through. And so when we move forward, there has to be someone that said, because see, I can talk, they can say, well, that's just a disgruntled person. He spent time in prison, this and that there, you know. But I work in the court system now, mm -hmm. you know. I go into jails. I've been back in prisons, you mm -hmm. know. And so the thing about it is that this is something draconian, right. and they borrow all the bad things. The Supermax prisons are set up off of prisoner war camps, you know. When it's 95 degrees outside and you got a little slither window, it's going to be 30 degrees, now you're gonna have two sets of, of, of thermals on and a jumpsuit, and if somebody next door to me is, is, is having a problem, it can be a psychosis breakdown, and it's okay, we know what to deal with them. We're gonna shoot them all, put the canister in there, and tear gas is gonna go off through the whole unit, and then they're gonna come and they're gonna spray the water hoses in there, and so that just aggravates, you know, the situation, that sensory deprivation. And if I'm talking to you like we're talking right now, and they have someone downstairs on the tier who's psychotic, and he said, well, no, no, y'all ain't talking to me, because he's, he's talking psychobabble, yeah. then right. y'all can't talk. And so he's going to bang on the doors, he's going to flush the door. So that works on us as well. We're, we're, you know, after a while, someone just banging on your door, banging on your door. Right. 
You know, people are uh, violating themselves with, with pencils and in their private parts and other things. Yeah. And you know, you may be mad at that person, but you know that's not a, not a natural human reaction right. to stress, but that's what it's come to. You know, and so when we talk about consciousness, yeah, we, we should be glad that prisoners are raising their level of consciousness, right. especially those who are coming from oppressed communities. This has been KiteLine. This conversation was part of the Prisoners Speak Out series, hosted by IDOC Watch and Focus Initiatives. We'll air more of this conversation in the coming episodes, and we'll have a link to our previous episode with Baye and Jock on our website. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.